when we listen to Dhamma from our teachers, or we read the suttas, or we chant suttas and teachings, we're always reminded that the beginning point of suffering or even just why we're here living in this world is always avicca, ignorance and misunderstanding of truth. So that reflection is quite humbling, something we have to remind ourselves that especially in the beginning of our practice what we've come from is ignorance and conditioned by ignorance. That means our thoughts and our views and attitudes, our habits are conditioned by ignorance and that's why we're still suffering and that's why we're here in this world. ones who have overcome ignorance have developed the path, practiced the Dhamma, and they're no longer subject to birth, aging or death, because they've abandoned ignorance. Minds are free from attachment, from craving, free from ignorance, having trained in mindfulness and wisdom, sila samadhi panya. And part of right view is just to accept that, say a worldly right view, lokiya samaditi, accepting that there are those beings who are arahants, who have manage to free their hearts from ignorance. A confidence that that is true, confidence and conviction that the Buddha was an enlightened teacher, free from ignorance with a pure heart and pure wisdom, pure compassion. That the Dhamma is true and it is a vehicle a means for us to penetrate truth and free our hearts from ignorance. Penetrating the Dhamma, understanding the Dhamma. The Arya Sangha exists, have existed. There are those who have practiced this path and realized the end of ignorance, cessation of ignorance, cessation of suffering cessation of birth, old age, sickness and death. This is right view, this is something that in the beginning we can just contemplate and reflect on to help set our minds in the right direction, whatever our particular experience of avijja has brought us different 
kinds of suffering and problems in our life, different moods, issues, we can at least listen to Dhamma, contemplate the Dhamma and start to establish some right view in our hearts and see the value of that. Uh, one has to open up to the truth a little bit more, investigate about oneself and life and the world and what is true. The Buddha said, you contemplate Buddha Dhamma Sangha, things worthy of veneration, truly worthy. There is such a thing as good and bad karma your mental states that are unwholesome, that lead to suffering, are true, it's, it's a truth that there are those such mental states, they do exist. Mental states that are wholesome, and can be developed to lead to the end of suffering, the end of ignorance, they also exist. And good and bad karma exists, true, it affects us. We are receiving the fruits of our karma, and the karma we're making is giving its fruit and will give its fruit. And from that we get the explanation of birth. The birth of a human being we all know about, nine months in the womb, we know about the birth of animals in different ways that we may learn about or see in this world. And the Buddha also mentioned that there are those beings who have been born spontaneously in other realms that we don't normally see or experience. Hell realms, ghosts, heaven realms, Brahma realms. There's something to contemplate. Think about that. The power of karma that can mean that when a human dies, maybe there's spontaneous birth in another realm. The special relationship we have with our parents, uh, the karma that they make bringing us into the world, bringing us up, whatever we feel about their personal characters or personalities, that special karma is not to be ignored or cannot be denied for somebody who's contemplating right view. We come to realize you know, the, the qualities of a mother and a father, something very special There are these different aspects of right view which we should remind ourselves of and contemplate just to begin pushing away some of the avicca that we may have picked up from our society, people we know, things we've read and heard in the past and all, or just our own thinking which we tend to just believe all the time anyway. Most of that is not coming from samaditi, so we have to learn how to be more discerning, sort through 
our thoughts, all that discursive thinking, all the thoughts that come up and go, come up and go all the time through our day. Learn to train the mind to think wisely using samaditi as, as the background. And this is not something special or beyond any of us as human beings. We can think and we can train our minds to think wisely using samaditi as a starting point. If you're contemplating these different aspects of samaditi, it means you start to notice, you pay attention to these truths in your life. You pay attention to the state of mind that you experience and the results of it. You pay attention to karma and its results. What you say, what you do, what you think, what other people say, do think, and the results that come back to them as well. You pay attention to Buddha Dhamma Sangha and what they mean. And you reflect, you keep coming back to those qualities. And so on. You pay attention to the path, you know, to the power of dana to purify the mind. The power of giving to overcome various attachments and coarser sense of self, the power of sila to bring the mind peace, freedom from regret, from guilt and remorse, and the power of meditation to free the mind from the hindrances and then to de develop true insight. One pays attention to these truths even if one isn't experiencing the results of the practice all the time, one can pay attention, one can notice it in oneself sometimes, in others other times. You know, samaditi is about what your mind is paying attention to and looking at, interested in, and so on. So it's going against the flow of the world which is coming from ignorance and conditioned by ignorance, craving and attachment and tends to lead people around in circles. That's what samsara is, life of going around in circles, never finding peace or stillness or true happiness. So in the beginning of practice, we're using wise thought, wise reflection. Is we don't just dismiss all thought so if we meditate, trying to develop mindfulness, and we're having struggles with a lot of thinking, well, we can use thought to overcome thought. Sounds strange, but that's how everyone has done it. Any arahant will have used the power of thought and the function of the thinking mind and trained it to help develop wisdom first on the more mundane level and then on the transcendental level. And as wisdom develops, well maybe there's less need to think and reason and consider things so much. One can just look and see. But in the beginning one does have to think, consider what is what, what is this, what is that? Is this the right way to do things, the right way to think or not? What does this lead to or not? What is suffering? How has it caused? How has it ended? 
and so on. But all of that thought, if it's backed by samaditi and it's part of the path, well, it will be bringing the mind to more stillness. It's resolving things, resolving doubts, resolving hindrances. So it does have an end. It's not just aimless mental chatter and mental thinking going here, going there all the time. It's directed by both mindfulness and wisdom with samaditi. And that could be whether you're, whatever posture you're in, whether you're sitting or walking meditation or doing any other activity, you can be training your mind in wise reflection. And the result is it supports the arising of more mindfulness and the abandoning of more of the hindrances, bringing the mind to this state of more continuous awareness and the quietness, the stillness that comes with it. So we use thought wisely, but it brings us to the end of thought, to the mind that is just firm and knowing experience as it's happening, knowing the body, knowing feelings, knowing the mind, knowing the objects of mind, the four foundations of mindfulness. Just knowing these things as they are, without a lot of thinking. Yeah, that's that's the result of all that previous thinking. It brings you to the point where you can just know things, see things without a lot of thinking. So contemplating what samadhiti is and using it, the different factors of it. Yeah, true, truly transcendental samadhiti is it's the Paticca Samubhada where you are really penetrating to see birth is conditioned by becoming, bhava is conditioned by upadana, attachment, conditioned by craving, conditioned by vaitana, by pasa, by the six sense bases, nama rupa, consciousness, sankhara, back to our vichara, seeing the conditioning process, understanding that each is a causal condition for the next. And in the beginning, maybe just considering karma and mental states, what are mental states, what are wholesome ones, what are unwholesome ones. Developing some true conviction in the power of this mind to develop in the path, to abandon unwholesome mental states, to develop wholesome mental states, and so on. And the mundane samadhiti gradually merges into the super mundane or the transcendental samadhiti through the practice. And sometimes we even have to reflect, well, what is karma and how is it affecting us? And in the long run, how is it affecting us? It does. Is it true that when people die, then there's rebirth, consciousness goes on. It's not just all ends there, as many people tend to think these days. When Ajahn Mahabur was a young monk, he noted an important story for him 
which he felt was uh, worth relating to others. So he noted, noted it down in a diary. This was in the last years of Ajahn Mun's life when Ajahn Mahabur was still quite a, just a Majima monk. And there was a novice called Samanin Liam who lived in, I think, in the Kompanon province. Rajin Mahabur heard of and got to meet. This novice was quite gifted in meditation and he could recollect past lives very clearly without delusion. He could recollect his past life where he'd, he'd previously been a novice as well, a novice monk, and he'd had a teacher who was well known at that time, a disciple of Ajahn Mun called Ajahn Tong, a Soko. And this novice had contracted a malaria, been living in a forest monastery and died from that malaria because there was no medicine. And in those days, the tradition in the Ajahn Mun monasteries was if you died in the morning, well, they cremated you in that same evening without a lot of ceremony. And this novice that he recollected, he, he died and his jitters there and he saw his dead body and then he saw people coming and wrapping the dead body in a cloth, carrying it out to the back of the monastery and having a cremation. He could remember seeing his own cremation and then thinking, well, I have no body left. What do I do now? Hmm. Time to go on Tudong, then I can't stay here. So he's still thinking as a novice monk, picks up his, you might say, celestial bowl, celestial grot, and walks off, leaves the monastery, and wanders for a long time, he said, till he felt very, very thirsty, maybe after many days, months, sense of time was a bit distorted perhaps, the perception of time. Eventually he was very thirsty and he stopped at one farm asking for water, but of course nobody answered him because he's not visible to anyone. So he thought, well, I'm a novice, I'm a, I can't steal, but according to the Vinaya, we are allowed to take water without asking. So he took a sip of water and the next thing he knew he was being born to the woman, the farmer's wife, got pregnant and he became her baby and he was born to that household. And as soon as he could speak, when he was about three years old, he started calling himself Atama, which is the formal way a monk or a novice addresses himself when talking to lay people. It means I, Atama. So he's a three-year-old calling himself Atama like a monk parents got very angry with him because he kept talking like a monk and acting as if he was some kind of a monk and they thought he was a bit crazy so they tried to slap him out of it the way parents might do and every time he said Atama they slapped him and just tried to force him not to speak and think like a monk thinking it was some kind of mental disease but they couldn't shake it off and the habit stuck because he could recollect, even from this young age, he recollected his previous life and it hadn't been distorted by time or birth process. 
they say normally human being is born and the nine months in the womb and the process of birth itself is so traumatic it erases the memory of the past lives for most people and it, especially as we've had so many many lives you just can't keep remembering all the detail of each life so by the time you're born you can't remember one monk gave the simile it's like say today at the end of your day you were to take a piece of paper and write down a diary of everything that happened today as far as you could remember you write it all down you could probably be quite detailed and get a good account of your day in a fashion of a diary then tomorrow at the end of the day you take the same piece of paper and you try to write down everything that happened tomorrow once you've reached tomorrow on that same piece of paper over the top of what you wrote the first day well you might be able to achieve that but it starts to get a little bit difficult because you're writing words over other words and then the following day you did the same thing it wouldn't be many days before your writing was completely illegible and just the paper became a mess of symbols that you couldn't really read and you couldn't really remember much about previous days very easily with nothing that you could read to jog your memory and they compare the mind like that over and over again remembering lifetimes and details starts to uh, get a bit confused and muddled so then by the time you're born as a baby you can't really remember in most cases but a few people, particularly those who have meditated or made merit in the past, sometimes can, especially when they're young. So this novice, or this young boy, who's thinking of himself as a novice, grew up always wanting just to be a novice. So as soon as he was old enough, he begged and implored his parents to let him ordain. And eventually they gave in so he reordained as a forest novice and Ajahn Mahabur got to hear about his story he could remember who his teacher had been this monk Ajahn Tong who was still alive in his second lifetime his original teacher from the first time, lifetime was still alive and all his memories of the events could be checked he could check that there had been a novice who had died of malaria in that monastery in that place at that time Ajahn Mahabur was very interested because you can see this is a very useful confirmation of karma, rebirth. You might not say ab absolute evidence, but a very useful evidence. So he noted it all down. He even double-checked the novice many times on the facts just to make sure he wasn't somehow deluded or tricking anybody. So Ajahn Man's funeral, all the teachers and great monks came. So Ajahn Tong was there. So Ajahn Mahabur got the novice to point out who his teacher had been in the previous life. And he, as each older monk walked past, he said, was it this one? Said, no. Was it that one? No. Eventually Ajahn Tong walked past. He said, was it this one? He said, yes. Ajahn Mahabur already knew from the description that it would be that one. 
but it just confirmed with a visual sighting. And I think they even took the novice back to his original monastery where he died and he could remember there were two large yang trees that had been at the front of the monastery which later on were cut down in his previous life. And Ajahn Tong confirmed this and he said only somebody who had lived there many, many years before would have known that those tree, trees existed. Uh, there were many details that they could confirm from the novice. Ajahn Mahabhava noted this down. It's both interesting that the novice, his good meditation meant that he could re, uh, recollect past lives and also just the details just confirm people can be born, die, be born again. And there's a continuum of consciousness from one life to the next. You know, this is the conventional reality, the ultimate reality of Paticca Samubhada is just states of mind arising, passing away. And there's no real person, it's all just an Dukkha Anatta. But the more conventional wisdom, mundane Samaditi, we start with that first. Just thinking about things, what leads to what, and the importance of karma, the importance of being careful with what we think, what we say, what we do, because it brings results back to us. It affects our, us, it affects other people around us. So we become more sensitive, more compassionate and wiser to the world when we can contemplate like this. But the aim is to bring the mind back to mindfulness to allow it to settle down, to cut through the doubts, the confusions and uncertainties, uh, to cut through a lot of the hindrances, say the more coarser kinds of lust and greed and anger which we may fall into, but then contemplating with samaditi, we realize that it really isn't in our best interest to hold on to these kinds of thoughts and moods. They should be abandoned and gives us the patience to keep working at it, however difficult it is to let go of moods and see through delusions. But when we do keep contemplating like this, well, it brings up this inner awareness where we can start to just see things with the more neutral, unbiased awareness of mindfulness, clear comprehension. We just know a mood as a mood, a thought as a thought, a memory is a memory, feeling is feeling, and so on. You know this body as body, just the body. And this is what gives us real confidence, real satire or faith, insight, internal faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, where we start to see these truths and know these truths for ourselves through our own practice. And you can see, well, thought and wise thought can be quite useful but it brings you to the point where you're just knowing things as they are rather than thinking and learning you're actually just seeing and knowing from your experience it's those t moments and those periods where the mindfulness is more continuous that you can see it's the stillness the cool awareness the still mind is what's so valuable for breaking through delusions in letting go of things that are impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, in no longer grasping at them as self. 
the Four Noble Truths become more obvious in in the mind when you practice like this and become familiar. You've trained in wisdom and investigating things, trained in mindfulness, and get used to thinking with samadhiti, thinking correctly, then you can just see the Four Noble Truths at work just in moments, moments of mind states, feelings arising, the way the body is from moment to moment. You can see that, as Lumpur Dun used to say, you know, his descript, simple description, a very powerful practical description of the Four Noble Truths is Samudaya is the, the cause of suffering. It's the mental movements of the, move, the mind moving out through the senses, you know, seeing, desiring to see, to hear, to touch, taste, smell, and to think, the mental movements. The result of samudaya is dukkha, or the result, the result of all that mental movement, desiring, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking, all that suffering, that's the result of that mental movement. Maga is the act of reining in, restraining the mind from all that mental movement, mental activity, bringing it back to stillness, one-pointedness inside, composing the mind, restraining the mind, calming the mind, focusing the mind. Niroda is the result of Maga, it's the liberation of heart liberation, the cessation of suffering and the liberation from kilesa and attachment. So when you restrain and calm the heart, bring it to stillness, then the result is end of suffering. It's just those four simple explanations of the Four Noble Truths. You can see just as you train your mind in mindfulness, you know, when mindfulness is strong, that's the path is strong, you're restraining the mind, calming the mind, letting go, bringing it back to stillness. And then the result is no, no suffering or the end of suffering. When mindfulness is weak and the mind starts going out all over the place, well the result is all kinds of confusion, dukkha. Birth, old age, sickness and death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair and so on. So then just in daily practice, sitting, walking, going about your business, you, you watch your mind from moment to moment. And you can see when mindfulness is sharp, whatever's happening, whatever the impingement, you know, the, the gain, the loss, the praise, the criticism, the status, the loss of status, the pleasure, the pain, all the different worldly wins, whatever's coming your way, if mindfulness is sharp and established, then the mind can be still. That's maga, and the result is an end of suffering. You might have some unpleasant experience come your way from your past karma, but it just goes to stillness. The mind is still, it's patient through that unpleasantness, and then it's the end, end of it. Well, when mindfulness is weak, the path is weak, well, it starts to stir us, doesn't it? 
particularly the unpleasant experiences, but the pleasant ones as well. We can attach to the pleasure, attach to the pain, the praise, the blame, the gain, the loss. We attach to it all. That attachment is the movement of the mind, seeking, wanting, grasping at experience, pleasure and pain. And the result of that is dukkha. More confusion, more suffering. So through our practice, we keep looking at the mind, what's happening. And if it is moving all over the place, we have to start working out ways to start reining it in, composing it. So we do use thought for that as well. Wise reflection, mindfulness, effort, energy. We use all the different tools that the Buddha described, gave to us. But the basic practice is learning to calm the mind from all those reactions of pleasure and pain, liking, disliking. When you can't restrain the mind, well, it always gets caught into conceptualizing, planning, scheming, viewing the world in different ways, wanting this, wanting that, this is good, that's bad, on and on it goes. And there's no end to it, the conceptualizing, the thinking, the planning and all of that just goes on and on and on, drains the mind, doesn't get it anywhere, doesn't bring peace or satisfaction, but actually stirs it up or dissatisfaction. So the practice has the flavor of forever learning to compose and restrain the mind. You're working from the outwards in, restrain speech and action first, calming things down, <clears throat> not always reacting with sort of pleasure and excitement or aversion, disgust, the different extremes of experience, but just knowing things as they are, training ourselves within the Vinaya and the Sila, training ourselves in the foundations of mindfulness and knowing the posture that we're in, knowing the thing that we're doing, be mindful, clear, clearly comprehending what we're doing from moment to moment through our day. But from the outwards we work inwards and gradually the mind becomes more prominent in our experience. We know our own mind from moment to moment. We know when there's a movement. You know, if you practice a lot, then it might be just the slightest movement is already sets off alarm bells, you know, or what's going on here and the mindfulness is straight there you have a, see something that attracts you brings up your desire and there's a little mental movement towards that object or that memory or that sound and that movement is enough to alert the mind that something's going on here maybe it's internally it's coupled with different feelings and emotions that the movement is enough to know oh, something's up here Maybe it's a very powerful movement, you can't restrain it at first, but you're just seeing, oh, this is a movement, this is samudaya, cause of suffering. If I let it go, well, it's bound to lead to suffering, reinforce the causes for more suffering, or just bring up suffering straight away. But bringing in mindfulness, where well, it starts to calm the movement, the reaction, the joy, the 
hatred, whatever it is, starts to calm it down again. That's maga, you're bringing the mind back to calm within the particular situation or experience. And you feel that as well, not just emotionally but physically. You know, the more mindfulness you have, then the more centered your mind is in the body. You're more aware of your posture and where you're going, what you're doing. You're not just up in the head thinking all the time. You're actually aware of your hands, your legs, as you're sitting, you're walking, you're eating, you're turning, you're walking back here, going there, stretching, sitting up, sitting down, lying down. You know, the mind becomes grounded in the body, maybe becomes grounded in the breath, maybe even aware of in and out breaths as you're walking along, not just when you're sitting. You're walking along, breathing in, breathing out, maybe eating, breathing in, breathing out as you eat, as well as aware of chewing and so on. Your mindfulness grounds you in the body, sharpens you towards feeling, pleasure and pain. Then the emotional reactions, pleasure and pain, bring up with them the mental formations, speech patterns which form first in the mind, just verbalization of emotions and thoughts. Mindfulness becomes grounded in seeing all that, but not necessarily following it or indulging it, just allowing it to come up, but then retreating from it again, allowing it to pass away without getting involved. You might have a mood based on your old karma. Something comes up, somebody says something you like, and you're pleased with that, but that's just your old karma conditioning a mood of satisfaction or pleasure. Somebody says something else you don't like and there's some displeasure, dissatisfaction and that's old karma but you're just watching the reaction but not following it, not getting caught up in it. You just see any reaction arise, pass away. And then you get a much subtler kind of pleasure, the pleasure of letting go, maybe even lead to some pity and sukha arising because you consciously let go of some kilesa at that point by establishing mindfulness. You just know it's the way it is. Pleasure is pleasure, pain is pain, happiness is happiness, suffering is suffering. You just see the different emotions and feelings and moods arise but then you let them go again. Body is body and you feel energetic, you feel tired, you feel healthy, you feel unhealthy, but it's just body, it's body and feelings. You look good, you don't look good. The mind becomes grounded in the body, in the feelings, in the mind itself, in the thought, because of training in mindfulness. You see, when mindfulness is very sharp, just the mind doesn't move anywhere. It's just quietly contained through the practice of mindfulness, clear comprehension and wisdom. The alternative is go right back to you know, the conventional reality of concepts and names and thoughts and moods and all the suffering that it brings. You're letting the mind, it seems nice sometimes, just let the mind go, indulge in every mood, but if you follow that through, where does it lead? It doesn't lead to 
real peace and happiness. It just leads to more suffering, more confusion. And we're in a suitable situation to understand that point through the practice. We can really use this training as a vehicle to do that, to see, carry things through. And when we do lose mindfulness, we get caught up into different mental formations and moods. We'll carry it through, follow it through, watch to see what its result is. Does it bring you to true peace? And you'll probably find it doesn't. Whereas when mindfulness is practiced, even when you're tired, it can still bring a great sense of release great sense of joy as you let go of different attachments. So I'll leave you with these words for you to consider tonight.